This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Today's passage is taken from Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. Sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known, to which the law and the prophet testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time. So as, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of God. I love it that uh, the first passage about the law in the New Testament in this series on uh, being saved by grace was done by someone with a law sign on him. <laughs> so thank you. Now you'll notice that uh, we are using uh, projector slides tonight. And while it wasn't designed for this purpose, that might help keep you awake. <laughs> Having had a large meal and it being later and you've had a long day, you'll need everything you can get, I think. Um, maybe I'll stop in the middle and tell you to talk to each other or whatever. Now, we're into the New Testament now, uh, so... For some of you, this will be far more familiar territory. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you so much for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great gift that you've given us in him. And we pray tonight that you'd help us understand this passage in Romans, this critical passion, this passage, this passage so important for the things we've celebrated this year in terms of uh, the Reformation. Uh, Father, we pray that you help us to understand it and understanding it, help us to live by it. And Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I need to tell you, the first half is the hard, hard, hard part. The second half is easier. So if you can stay awake for the first half, maybe we'll do something in the middle to wake you up and then we'll go on to the second half. Um, friends, the world that we live in is in a mess, isn't it? Uh, it abounds with massive problems. The indicators are multiple, uh, you just have to look and see. Uh, poverty, injustice, war, brutality, changing cultures, large-scale abuse of children, family breakdown, environmental degradation and destruction, uh, the dangers of religious fundamentalism, uh, sickness, ageing, personal addiction to destructive behaviours, whether they be technology or drugs or alcohol or pornography, or technology, uh, whatever they are. Racial hatred, disharmony, disease, economic manipulation. Uh, our world is a world with severe problems. Uh, we don't like it, and inevitably we look for causes. And there is no shortage of likely suspects. 
uh, human greed, unharnessed nature, corrupt politics, unjust economics, wrong social theory, bad psychology, wrong religion, ignorance, lack of education. Again, the list could go on. We humans have tried to identify the culprits and the causes, and we've produced all sorts of solutions, but things are no better now than they were. If anything, things are getting worse. I look at some of the things that are happening in Australia from a distance now, and I think, wow, if you told me 30 years ago we'd be in that place now, I wouldn't have believed you. And it's here, I think, that God comes into the picture. You see, God agrees with us. He knows that the world is in deep trouble and it has a problem of massive proportions. Um, but more than this, God also outlines his view as to the cause of the problems. On page three of his word, the Bible, he spells it out. Underneath the problems we face, he thinks, is one major cause. And it is our independence from God. You see, all of us were created by God to live dependently upon him, our creator. We were made to live in right relationship with him, our creator. We were made to live in right relationship with the environment that he placed us in. We were made to live in right relationship with each other, our fellow human beings. But most critically and most importantly, we were created to live in right relationship with our creator, our maker, our Lord. But the long and the sorry history of humans is that we do not like this idea. We seek to live without God and without dependence upon him. We all sin. And the result is that God is justly angry with us. That is what Romans spells out for us in, the great, in great detail in Romans 1 verse 18 all the way through to chapter 3 verse 8. He basically, Paul basically surveys all humanity and all the major groupings of humans in the world. And his findings are summarised in Romans 3 verses 9 to 20. That's where I want you to start tonight. So have a look at it in your Bibles and look at what God's appointed spokesman says. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He means we Jews. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no, none that is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their, their eyes. This is a combination of a whole lot of Old Testament verses that Paul has put together. And he is saying this is the human dilemma. We were created for God, but we have broken away from him without exception. Now, some may be sceptical of this and some may not be, believe me, but the, the evidence of mass human and personal sin is evident everywhere in the world. Much of the wealth of nearly every wealthy country in the world is built on iniquity. The food we eat is often produced by people who don't get a fair wage. 
the clothes we wear are often the result of exploitation of women and children. We, I know in Australia, we accepted it until those terrible accidents that have happened with clothes building factories and then just for a little while we get serious and concerned about it and then we forget and we buy the cheap clothes again. Why? Because we're sinful. The levels of luxury we enjoy and take for granted are to some extent dependent on the suffering and mistreatment of those who cannot speak up or defend themselves. Western materialism's insatiable lust and corporate greed is permanently damaging God's world. It's depleting its resources. It's polluting its atmosphere. And it's destroying countless series of species of flora and fauna the world's being ripped apart by us. The developing world's rush to join us has resulted in ripping the environment apart and corruption on a massive scale. Our willing purchase of the goods of iniquity betray us. The words on our tongues in our families and among our friends betray our self-centeredness and our self-interest. Friends, these things and many others shout out a common testimony. We are sinners. We have not loved God as we might. We have not loved our neighbour as we ought. And we have not sought justice and mercy as we should have. We have not walked humbly before our God as he calls us to. We are sinners who one day will stand before a God angry with sin who will call us to account. Friends, it is that stark reality that forms the basis uh, for this talk tonight. And we're going to look at the impact of God's actions on the world and in our lives. And particularly we're going to see God's answer to our problem. And we're going to start with the passage we've got today, Romans 3, 21. And I'm going to go through to, 20, to 31, although most of our time's in 21 to 26. Let's get down to work and uh, see what God's divine solution is to our problem. This shared dilemma with everyone in the world. So have your Bibles open. And uh, I've got some uh, an outline that I've given you. And to keep you awake, I've given you things that will cause you to be able to write down every now and then. That'll keep your hands going. Uh, let's get down to work. Now, as, uh, as we do, I want to tell you um, that we have some hard work to do. And there are much that is difficult in the passage we're looking at. I don't think it'll be long tonight, but it'll be complicated. If we put in the work, the rewards will be rich and lasting. So... As we look at these words, I want you to remember the context. Sinful humanity, Romans 1, 18 to 3.20. With that, I want you to look at verse 21. It contains two great, grand words. For God says, but now. But now. In other words, this is the human situation. I spelled it out for you. But now something has happened. God has acted. In other words, this was the pattern of the old era, but now a whole new era has begun. But now God has done something to solve the human dilemma. But now a solution from God is available. Let's stop again before going on. You see, as he spells out God's solution, Paul uses an important word here. He talks about the righteousness of God. Can you see it there? So we need to define the term righteousness. Now, I think that we largely today have a tendency to think of righteousness in ethical terms, don't we? We think that a righteous person is a moral person. A righteous person is a person whose actions are right or good. Now it is true that the Bible does speak in those ways at times. 
However, in the Bible, the concept of righteousness is also, if not primarily, a relational word. Righteousness has to do with right or good relationships, often in a legal setting. So if righteousness of God has to do with what he does in order to bring people into right, so right, the righteousness of God has to do with what God does in order to bring people into right relationship with him. So I, we could define righteousness like this. The righteousness of God is the saving activity that God does in order to put people into right relationship with him. Let me repeat it. The righteousness of God is the saving activity that he does in order to put people into right relationship with himself. Now, notice what that means. If the righteousness of God is what God does, if it's his saving activity which brings people into right relationship with him, then righteousness must have nothing to do with me. Is that true? If that's what it is, it must have nothing to do with me. It isn't what I do. It isn't how well I perform. It isn't based on my accomplishments in terms of keeping laws and commandments. No, this is what Paul means in verse 21. He says, the righteousness of God comes apart from law. That is, it doesn't come by me keeping laws. Paul is saying that a person is not righteous because they are descended from Abraham, nor because they're circumcised, nor because they offer sacrifices, nor because they keep the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. No, verse 21 says that the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets, they testify to a righteousness from God. That is, the Old Testament points forward to a righteousness of God. But what I want to look at now is verse 21. For Paul is clear. The righteousness tested to, testified to by the Old Testament is a righteousness, did you notice it? Apart from law. That is, it is not found in law, nor is it found in law-keeping. Then in verse 22, Paul tells you where it does come from. So if that's not where it comes from, here is where it comes from. There is a righteousness available, and it doesn't come from us. No, it is the righteousness of whom? Of God. Through whom, so, and now you could add another heading to my notes, and the heading might be, I'm not sure if this heading is in there, through whom and by what mechanism? Have you got that heading? No, that's a heading. Through whom and by what mechanism? Let me say it again. Oh, let me say what I mean by this. Look at me at verse 22 and answer the question yourself. Okay, look at verse 22. Through whom does the righteousness of God come? It's a Sunday school question. What's the answer? Jesus, right? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's lots of debate as to what that means. However... I think it means what it sounds like it means. The righteousness of God comes through Jesus and is taken on by believing what has happened in and through Jesus. You, you, Jesus comes, you look at what he's done and what happens in him, and you claim that. But let's go and look at verse 22 again. Paul goes on to explain whom it is for. Can you see whom it is, who, who it's for? It is for all. That is for everyone who accepts it. Now you can be old or young, student or worker, 
employed or unemployed, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, mentally fit or mentally deficient, smart or dumb, Australian, Asian, African, Chinese, American, Pacific Islander, Singaporean, or any other nationality you'd like to name. Anyone. It is for all. Verse 23 indicates that just as there's a level playing field created by sin, we are all sinners, so there's a level playing field in the salvation stakes as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all can be righteous. There's no difference. Level playing field in all those areas. Then in verse 24, Paul explains how the righteousness of God is accomplished. It is accomplished through people being justified. Now we need to spend some time explaining this technical term. First thing to say about justification is that righteousness and justification are very similar in meaning. They sound like very different words, but they're not. The same Greek word lies behind those two words. And like righteousness, justification is a relational term. But it is also a legal term. It's all about this. It's all about an accused person being declared righteous by being acquitted or by being deemed innocent by a judge. Okay, so a judge says, you are innocent. So we could define justification this way. I'm hoping it's there. It means to declare someone to be in the right with someone else. Okay, look at it again. Justification means to declare someone to be in the right with someone else. Now, if we look at that def definition, uh, we could say that a justified person is a person who is acquitted by God from all the charges that could be brought upon them because of their independence. Okay, they're acquitted by God for all the charges that could be brought against them because of their independence. Can you hear how that's legal and relational all at the same time? A justified person is a person who just happened, uh, sorry, who has had happen these things, which means there's no longer anything that's standing in the way of their relationship with God. That is, he's a person, he or she is a person who is righteous. He or she is a person whom God has said, "You are, I declare you to be right with me. You're in a right relationship with me. Now, I want you to remember this term justification. It's a critical word, fundamentally important in Christian faith. Now, let's get used to it and remember it. Anyway, let's get back to Romans. Paul goes on to say where justification comes from. Now, where do you think he's going to say it comes from before you start? It comes from God. They are justified freely. It is a free gift. We don't earn it by our human effort. It is given by God's grace. Their justification, our justification, if we are Christian, is a free gift from God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Paul is very repetitive. Very repetitive. And he has a reason. He doesn't want us to get it wrong. 
He wants us to hear this over and over again. Being declared righteous, being justified, can only come from God. It cannot come from us. It comes wholly and solely from a gracious God. And having made this point again, he presses on and he gives us the mechanism for accomplishing it. Paul tells us that it does, where it does come from, it comes from the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. He does it through presenting Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, what are the words you don't understand there? Well, some of you may not understand the word redemption. So, redemption is when you liberate something. Yeah, did I have that before? A justified person is a person acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought upon them because of their independence. Redemption is when you liberate something through the payment of a price or a ransom. Now, we know that, don't we? Because we've looked at Ruth. And we know what it is. It, but we know it from another... We know it from movies as well, don't we? It's what you do when someone is kidnapped. Right? You pay them a huge sum to have a person released. You redeem them. You can see that in Paul's argument. He says, we're all under sin. We're slaves of sin. We're bound to sin. God redeems us through offering a ransom. The ransom he offers is the death of his son Jesus and because of that ransom we can go free. We are no longer slaves of sin. No longer under the anger and judgment of God. We're right with God. Now the next definition is a sacrifice of atonement. The phrase is actually one word in Greek. A sacrifice of atonement and it is this. God's provision of a sacrifice that enables him to do two things. One, to forgive the sin. One, to forgive the sin. And two, to turn away his anger from the sinner. To forgive the sin, to turn away his anger from the sinner. Try and understand the logic again of this. All humans are under sin. Therefore, all humans face the anger of God so if human beings are, into, are to be in right relationship with God, what needs to happen? Well, two things. God needs to act, and he has. He's acted in history. He's sent his son. The supreme innocent one, Jesus, faced what he didn't deserve, but what we did deserve. He faced death in our place. He faced the anger of God in our place. So he dealt with sin and he dealt with the anger of God. He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement. And because of his death, we don't have to face death and we don't have to face the anger of God. Because of his death, there's a possibility of forgiveness. So what's the next big question? Is there anything I have to do? That's the great human question, isn't it? Isn't it? Is there anything I have to do? If the righteousness of God is totally from God... If justification is his gift, if his means are provided through the freely given gift of his son, then is there anything I have to do? Paul's answer, answer is clear, I think. Well, yeah, you have to accept it. You have to accept it. You have to say, yes, this is for me. The death of Jesus is a death for me. The gift of God is a gift I want to take on board and live by. That's what Paul means when he talks about faith. That's what faith is. It's saying yes to God. It's like Abraham. When he looks up to the sky 
He sees the stars there. He hears the word of God, thus shall your children be. He says, oh, that's enough for me. And God says, you're right with me. It's being convinced that what God has done in Christ is effective to deal with sin and God's anger. And that's what Paul, mean when he, Paul means when he says, through faith in his blood, through faith in the death of Jesus. It means taking on board what Jesus has done. Friends, I want you to understand this. Faith then must involve mental assent, at the very least. But it's more than mental assent. It's more than just ticking the box in our brain, isn't it? It's a commitment and a reliance upon what God has done in Jesus. It's a whole of life thing. It's taking on board what God has done. Now in the remaining verses of the chapter, Paul goes on to spell out the implications of what he said. And he tells us what it means. And there are two prongs to his argument. One prong tells us what this means for our understanding of God. And the other prong tells us what it means for our understanding of ourselves in relation to God. Let's look at what it means about our understanding of God. Verse 26. Paul tells us that what God has done demonstrates that he is both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let, let me explain what I think is going on. Paul is saying that the death of Jesus on the cross is actually a demonstration that God is just. You see, if God had said, oh, look, um, I'm feeling sorry for you, really. Um, let's not worry about sin. Let's forgive and forget. I'm a loving God. I forgive you out of the generosity of my heart then what would God be like if he did this? He would certainly be a loving God, wouldn't he? But he wouldn't be a just God because he wouldn't justly punish sin of his created beings. A just God cannot stand in justice. And it's unjust, isn't it, for us to have disobeyed God and got away with it. A just God must be angry with sin. But what if this just God is also a loving God? Well, if he's a loving God, then perhaps, just perhaps, he can find a way that he can love and still be just. That's the hard part, isn't it? That he can love and still be just. And that's what happens on the cross. Because on the cross, the just and righteous God punishes sin. His son pays the penalty for sin by standing in our place for us. In the cross, God's anger at sin and sinners is expressed. In the cross, we see him to be just, but we see something else on the cross as well. We see the God who loves us and seeks to forgive us. We see the God who forgives and justifies the ungodly, which is us. He is God who is just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Now, let's now look at what it means for me, for us. Verses 27 and 28. Let me read them to you. Paul says, where then is boasting? What's well, excluded? Um, because of the law? The law that requires works? No, no, no. Because of the law that requires faith is what he says. Sorry, because of the law that requires works? No, he says, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain, he says, that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
What Paul is saying is that the gift of justification is completely from God. Then if so, there's no way you can boast before God. You see, if God's given it, you can't turn up to God and say, oh, you owe me. No, it was his gift. You owe him, actually. What Paul is saying is that. We cannot roll up to God and say, God, look, you've got an obligation to me, Andrew Reid. No, I couldn't go on if I said that. Uh, I'll imagine Paul. Right? Paul says, God, you've got an obligation to me. I'm a Jew. I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. I've got the right pedigree. I have a right to heaven. Do you notice a common thread in all of those statements? It's the word it begins with. I. They each talk about I or me. They are boasts. Each of them says, I am someone or I have done something. And Paul says that the cross excludes such boasting. It excludes the I. The cross is grasped by faith. It excludes any possibility of boasting. There is no I in faith, as it were. Faith is the accepting of what God has done. Calvin puts it in this sort of language, it is the steadfast confidence of God's goodwill toward me, as is demonstrated in Jesus and the cross. Now, I want to finish tonight. I told you it wouldn't be too long tonight. I want to finish by telling you a bit about myself. Sounds terrible after we've just told it, oh, you shouldn't do all this eye stuff, doesn't it? But... You're awake now anyway. Now you've done pretty well tonight. Um, before I came to Singapore, well I still do it actually, I spend a little bit of every year travelling to various places to speak. And as I do, you know, what, one of the things that happens is that I have to grapple with the question of gifts. Um, you see, in nearly every culture there is some ritual that goes on about gifts and gift giving. In nearly every culture. So when I speak in Australia, I'm often given gifts. That's, sometimes they're monetary, and you'll understand this in Australia. Sometimes they're alcoholic. <laughs> sometimes they feed my love of books. People give me good books. Uh, and sometimes they come in the shape of a prayer of thanks. When I speak overseas... Um, the gift giving differs. Um, if it's in Southeast Asia, it often consists in food, and you'd be really surprised about that, I guess, or generous financial gifts, or gracious care of me in terms of accommodation. The first time I ever came to Singapore, the person uh, who was looking after me took me out to about four or five meals a day, all in a different place, all with different food. I was absolutely astounded that I didn't go home many, many kilos heavier than I'd come. Uh, maybe I sweated now, I'm not quite sure. If it was in Papua New Guinea, it would consist in food and acceptable local handicrafts. Sometimes there's an expectation that a gift might be given in return. The tricky thing is when you're in a culture that you don't quite know. For that reason, I often take a supply of books that I've written that I can offer as a gift in return. <laughs> Otherwise, I often try, sometimes unsuccessfully, particularly in Singapore and Southeast Asia, 
to host a meal myself. That's just not done. <laughs> anyway, in Paul's day, there was a recognition that the deepest and most important relationships were those formed by a gift. Okay? So emperors gave gifts to Caesar-loving cities. Local leaders gave gifts to their constituents, such as entertainment, buildings and financial assistance. Patrons gave money to groups whose social or political support they wanted. Friends gave gifts to friends. Political or legal assistance they might have given. Reciprocal hospitality. Aid in distress. And underneath all of this giving were a couple of considerations. First, you needed to be careful and discriminate in who you gave gifts to. And just in general about your giving. Second, you needed to identify who was worthy and proper to receive your gift. And the most basic criterion for you giving was worth. So while you might give token gifts to the poor, your small cash out of your pocket, as it were, you reserve the big gifts for the worthy. You know, the leading citizens, the older and influential people, not children, the free, not the slaves, the male, not the female, the active and the powerful, not the weak. So in the ancient world, as much as in the contemporary world, gift-giving was always conditioned by the worth of the recipient, the person you were giving to. And inevitably, the sort of mentality that grew up in the brains of people was that that's what God, you do with God as well. So that's how you began to view God. So if you lived in the world of the first century, you considered that the gods were discriminate in their giving. Like you, they only gave to the worthy. And even Jews thought this way. They knew that God was gracious and kind. They knew they'd read their Old Testaments. They knew that, he, that they could not earn his election. But they also knew that the true and living God was favourably disposed toward them, his people. He'd chosen them from all the nations of the world and they were his special possession. They were special to him. Jews and even certain groups of Jews were special to him. They were the worthy. And so God was favourably disposed toward them. So please understand what I'm saying. The culture of the first century world and perhaps even our own culture is one where we know and understand that gift giving is conditional. Gift giving is conditional. It's given and giving without criteria or of worth. Giving without criteria of worth is bizarre. It is weird beyond description. No, no, it's worse than that. It's socially dangerous. It's destabilising of the way society functions. It is subversive. It's just plain wrong. But friends, can you hear what God is saying through Paul in Romans 3? God is saying he's done exactly that. 
God is saying that the grounds of justification is not your worth. It is not who you are. It is not how good you are. It is not how well you manage to keep laws. It is not what nationality you are. It's not where you fit in society. It's not your sex. It's simply God's grace. It's simply God's boundless, endless, unconditioned, unexpected, overwhelming, countercultural, surprising and indiscriminate love and grace. He just loves and he gives. It has absolutely, absolutely, absolutely nothing to do with me and nothing to do with you. It's got to do with him. And it has everything to do with him and his nature. And that grace and that love takes absolutely unworthy people like you and me. And God says, you're my loved ones now. It causes God to take the weak and the powerless and the unworthy and the ignoble and the despised and turn them into saints. It's what causes him to take a Moabite and have his son born from her progeny. <laughs> that is just incredible. Why couldn't you choose a Jew who would be worthy of such? No, no, he loves the other. He loves the other. He loves giving not for worth's sake. Friends, if you are here a Christian tonight, then there's nothing in you that deserves where you are. Nothing. It's not because God needs you. It's not because there's anything within you. It's because of God and his love. It's because of God's great gift. He's the giver of life and the giver of good things and he loves giving. Friends, we are so used to it that we can't see how radical this is. God justifies who? The ungodly. Whether they're slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor, billionaire or pauper, Chinese or Caucasian. Indiscriminate, as it were. There are no criteria that can prepare you for God's gift. No social, ethnic, financial, financial or any other criteria. There is no greater gift than this one that God gives. There never has been, there never will be. This astounding, transforming, unexpected, overwhelming gift of forgiveness and justification. It is sheer, astounding, outrageous grace. Friends, today we've talked about one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. We've talked about the cross and we've talked about justification and I hope the coin has dropped for you but I don't want you to just know the doctrine in your heads. I wanted you tonight to feel it and experience it and live it. For this doctrine is a doctrine that transforms and changes. And when you understand it, it just blows your world apart. 
500 years since one man sitting in his study looking at Romans 1 said, oh, now I understand. And it has transformed the world. Just like it transformed the world when people first understood it back in the first century. Justification tells us that the ground of God's action is love, grace and righteousness. It tells us that this gracious and just God has acted and he's acted to set our relation, right our relationship with him and he does it out of sheer generosity which depends on no payment we can make and is not contingent upon a payment we might make in the future. Friends, if you grasp this, it'll change everything you are and everything you do. It's incredibly transformative, overwhelmingly different. For it says you are the object of a gift. Incredible, costly, surprising, overwhelming, Christ-centred gift. So if you're a Christian, I urge you to accept this gift by accepting Jesus. Sorry, if you're not yet a Christian, I hope you'll accept this gift by accepting Jesus and all that you've heard about him and what he's done. And if you're already Christian, then you know this. Through this gift, the God of all the universe has forgiven you, justified you, made you his. He will keep you. Go and live in the light of the gift. Be like him and like his son. Be overwhelmed by the gift and be givers in kind. Be givers in kind. Love as you've been loved. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Accept as you've been accepted and give as has been given to you. And we'll look at a couple of areas where that's worked out tomorrow morning. Okay, let's pray. Our oh, Father, we, we again reflect on this great gift that you've given us. Thank you that you, the God of all the universe, has forgiven us justified us, made us yours. Father, please help us to go and live in the light of your gift, to be like you and like your son, to be so overwhelmed that we are givers in like kind. Help us to love us, we've been loved, to give us, we've been forgiven, accept us, we've been accepted, and to give as it has been given to us. Father, we pray this, that we might be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.